the idea of intersectionality as a concept had a very and does have a very long established history within the United States. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I bring you the voices and perspectives which help you to understand the United States from an international perspective. The topic of today's show is a concept that's been, well, it's become really central to the American culture war in recent years, and for that reason I think it's been very difficult to really get a grip on this concept without being sucked right into the middle of that culture war, which is really usually not a particularly enlightening place to be. That concept is intersectional feminism. An idea, the core of which has been around for centuries, but has really only, I think, it's fair to say, become central to culture war and conversations about American culture over the last six or seven years or so. Now, one reason for that was because Hillary Clinton made it very central to her 2016 presidential campaign, even though I think it's fair to say that Clinton herself has a very complicated relationship to this idea in the eyes of many feminists. But since then, this concept, which in its modern form has its roots in critical race theory, something else we'll be talking about today, has become caught up in this really vitriolic attack against CRT and related ideas which we've seen emerge all across America, and as we're going to hear today outside of America, America as well, in the wake of the 2020 racial justice protests which followed the killing of George Floyd. This backlash has included attempts in many states to ban CRT and intersectionality from being taught in schools and universities or in a workplace setting. And I think, you know, there's no better time to have a really thorough discussion of an idea than when people want to ban us from having that conversation. And that's why I wanted to make it the topic of today's episode. In order to explore this concept and the history behind it, I invited Shanna Khan onto the episode. Shanna is a teacher and activist in Madrid, Spain, where she coordinates an organization called Intersect Madrid, which facilitates anti-bias and anti-racist trainings in workplaces and educational settings. Actually, the very same type of training and education that Republicans are currently in the process of trying to ban in the United States. She also has a big interest in intersectionality in the United States and has conducted research on this. Shanna hosts a podcast called Maneuvering, which I really, really recommend. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes to this episode so you can check it out yourself. In this podcast, Shanna and her co-host discuss feminism and anti-racism rooted in their own lived experience. I think that's what makes the podcast so interesting. So Shanna, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Shanna, the question that I wanted to begin with is a really, really simple one, but I think that one that often enough is is not actually posed and not explained in conversations of this this concept, and that is, what is intersectionality and why does it matter? At its core, intersectionality is a concept that all oppression is interlinked and interwoven. And it tells us that systems of oppression, such as racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, etc., etc., permeate through society to create compounding and overlapping layers of discrimination. So the concept itself tells us that each person's experience of discrimination and oppression is different. That systems of oppression can marginalise a person in interdependent ways rather than a single axis frame. So generally, every woman or person that faces some sort of discrimination has their own story of how they arrive at intersectionality or how they find intersectionality. 
Um, some people find it by being politicised by their experiences, by micro injustices in their family, um, or on a political level by wars being waged in the name of, of saving brown women, in the name of feminism, right? But for myself, you can probably hear I'm a Scottish South Asian woman. I grew up in a Pakistani household, so a Muslim household in Glasgow, Scotland. Now, Glasgow was is a pretty diverse community. It celebrates a pretty large South Asian community within that. So it wasn't hard to find people who looked like me, who shared my culture in my city. But growing up, I went to a predominantly white school. So people who didn't look like me and I had to assimilate to the predominantly white culture. In general, I was pretty politicised by what was happening in the UK around the time of the Scottish independence referendum and the Brexit referendum. But something that's important to stress is that I always saw racism and sexism as completely separate, two separate issues compartmentalised in my brain. So fast forward later to when I went to university and that's when I found feminism. And as I was growing up uh, throughout adolescence and in university, I was the feminism I was seeing was not one that I could find affinity with, affinity with, but it was actually neoliberal feminism. So what we see as girl boss feminism depicted by movements such as sexual empowerment. And this was the type of feminism that advocated for a view of the world or goals that didn't include me as a person of colour. I didn't see a sense of female solidarity with that because the goals of sexual empowerment and deviance wasn't something that aligned with my culture growing up in a Muslim household, right? Within my culture, there were certain expectations of women and girls that white feminism had viewed as backwards or oppressed. The, the type of feminism that was presented to me was a binary between liberated and oppressed. And as a woman of colour, as a Muslim girl growing up in a predominantly white society, I was made to feel like I belonged in the oppressed category because if feminism meant freedom, albeit sexual freedom or economic freedom or complete freedom, then my reality was completely incompatible with this mainstream view of feminism. So essentially, I was caught at the intersection of race, Islamophobia and gender. So circling back to the question of why does intersectionality matter? So if I take my own lived experience of being at the margins of sexism and racism and apply it to the wider context, it was profoundly clear to me at that time that intersectionality provides not only me, but other women and people of marginalised identities a framework to understand how systems of power operate in the world and how it operates to marginalised marginalized many people. All right, so in, in, in public discourse um, in the US and elsewhere, intersectionality is often presented as a very new concept. So if you listen to right-wing media in the US right now, which I don't recommend doing, but sadly I kind of have to, to to follow what's going on, then you get the impression that this is kind of the latest product of a depraved liberalism and this kind of really new threat to America. But what this ignores is that the idea of intersectionality actually has a really long history in the United States. And I think that's a history that often gets obscured by the fact that we tend to understand the feminist movement through this idea of the waves of feminism, which basically makes out, you know, as a kind of global standard and a standard that should apply to all women, uh, you know, a, a system that, that we came up with in order to understand essentially white Western feminists. And that kind of means that we don't always focus on the debates that were going on within feminism at the time. 
and the actual, you know, these in many ways foreshadowed intersectionality today. The argument we're having now is really just kind of the latest installment of actually a very, very old argument within and beyond feminism. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the origins of the concept and, and the how the core ideas in it really date back decades or centuries. Yeah, yeah, the idea of intersectionality as a concept had a very and does have a very long established his, history within the United States. You're completely correct. The idea of intersectionality as a concept had a very and does have a very long established his, history within the United States. So the concept itself was coined by black feminist scholar Kimberly Crenshaw and her work specifically within US employment law. So her her work or Crenshaw's work dates back to her initial paper written in 1989 called Demarginalising the Intersection of Race and Sex. So in this paper, Crenshaw basically questions the extent to which black women were able to receive legal protection only when they accepted that their experience of gender discrimination is similar to an individual whose identity does not intersect between race and gender, so i.e. a white woman. In other words, the law in the eyes of the law, the experience of white women's sexism could represent the experience of all women, essentially. So that was really foundational for what later, for what we know as intersectionality today. But if we look further back in history, we can see that the beginnings of what we know as intersectionality and intersectional feminism today actually began further back and came from black women's rights activists much earlier than the 80s. So often the, the way that feminist history is told, be it in gender studies classes or in history classes like it was for me, we often use the wave analogy, analogy like you mentioned. Now, the wave analogy itself is problematic for many reasons, because it often leaves out and erases many important people of colour and black women who are fighting for, for similar but also different rights at the same time. The way it's often told, the waves, of, the waves of feminism, is that we have the first wave, second wave, and third wave. But generally, there's a misconception around what, what each one is, what sort of time markers each one represents, and it's just not clear exactly how people of colour fit into, into these movements, and it's, it's important to apply an intersectional lens to that. The first wave of feminism generally in the US generally began from the 19th to the early 20th century. And this began with the fight for the right to vote, so the belief that women should achieve political equality. And from this, we have what we know as the suffragettes. In the US, this actually began with the temperance movement, which had pushed at the time, had pushed for the prohibition of alcohol, where white American women were really crucial to the success of the temperance movement, which later did um, come into play in the 1920s. So at this time... Throughout the temperance movement, you can see that there's lots of traction. We can see that there's lots of traction getting uh, gained from from classic feminist icons such as Susan B. Anthony, which is a classic figure that we're often taught about, um, who set up the first all-women's temperance convention because women weren't allowed to attend the other temperance conventions. And throughout the temperance movement, as it was getting integrated into the abolitionist movement in parts of the U.S., Began to people began to question, or we now question now, whose suffrage these women were actually fighting for, because black and African American women at the time were also advocating for suffrage, but importantly, they were advocating for universal suffrage. We then have the second wave of feminism, which is marked from the 1960s, from 1960s, from 1963 generally, to the 1980s, 
and it's marked by Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, which was written specifically for for white women who wanted to advocate for the right to work outside the home to to shun the idea that they had to be mothers, to be wives, to be only caregivers and to fight for economic equality. Now, the idea of being caregivers and to work outside the home was something that African-American and black women were, again, already doing at this time. So earning the right to work outside the home was not a major concern for black women because many of whom already had to work outside the home. Large markers such as in the, 90, in the 60s and 70s, such as the right to use birth control and the passing of the 1973 Roe v. Wade, where, um, which, which granted women's reproductive freedom to some extent, so the right to abortion. But again, if we apply a racialized perspective, so an intersectional perspective, we can see that this conversation that was happening at this time around the right to birth control and the right to reproductive control again omitted uh, a really crucial conversation around women of colour because this retelling of history omits uh, a massive part where women of colour were forced or a history of forced sterilisation of women of colour and people with disabilities. So the issue of gaining birth control was a again a white women's issue. So as this movement was taking place black women at the time and African-American women were advocating for women's rights, but were not being heard in white women's spaces. So then we have third wave feminism, which is a contentious and often confusing time within or marker within academia, because lots of scholars and academics are confused as to what exactly constitutes third wave feminism and when it began. But the general consensus is that it's pegged by two key um, things. First being the Anita Hill case in 1991. And this marked early third wave activism involved fighting for fighting for recognition that workplace harassment was something that women could speak up, up against and increasing the number of women in positions of power that were speaking up. And we also see roots of Kimberly Crenshaw's a conception of intersectionality within third wave feminism as well and the idea of critical race theory taking shape as well. So also at this time we have work such from Judith Butler who was making really foundational um, points within feminist movements that gender and sex are in fact separate and this became fundamental for what we know now as the trans rights movement throughout time throughout third wave feminism and how that weaves itself into intersectional feminism. Today, we see a similar need for the same critical lens or intersectional lens to be placed on the way we place on feminist theory to be placed on racial history as well, to, to use these important um, markers and to use these important people who were advocating for rights at these times to tell history through these perspectives rather than about these perspectives. Yeah, so one thing that I think is so interesting about the history you've just told is that so basically intersectionality, although the, you know, the, the, the term itself is of recent coinage, the ideas behind intersectionality have been present for a really, really long time. It's just that the people who have been voicing them have generally not been the voices that history has come to regard as canonical. So there's this kind of way of telling the history of the feminist movement that, that you've just told us so much about, where basically, you know, there are particular identifiable heroes and particular identifiable movements and particular events that happened. But 
what we so often don't learn about is the way that, that these these movements or these people didn't actually represent everyone. So it's kind of an erasure of the struggle of non-white women. And I think that it's interesting to see this as part of a broader erasure of African-American history that happens so often when we talk about the history of the United States. For instance, most people would identify America as having been a democracy in the 1940s and the 1950s. But you can only actually do that if you ignore the experience of African Americans in the South at that time. You know, so there's just this this way that this particular story of American history, the narrative that we tend to tell, always is leaving out these voices. And intersectionality is actually an idea that's been left out of American history. So in a way, it's it's not surprising that today conservatives turn around and say, whoa, what's this new radical thing that the liberals have come up with? It's just because they're ignorant of this history, right? They don't understand that this idea has been around in America for, for a really long time. I think the link to CRT is really interesting because as you mentioned, CRT has its origins, particularly in the civil rights movement. So basically, the scholars who first came up with the ideas behind CRT, people like Derek Bell, people like Kimberly Crenshaw, were providing essentially a critique of civil rights liberalism, where civil rights liberals said the way that we can solve racial discrimination as a problem in the United States is through legislation. Things like the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and then these thinkers come along and say, well, no, actually, you know, this problem is so much deeper than legislation. Even if you legislate equality, you're not going to produce equality in what remains a radically racist society still. Today, for instance, there is there is legal equality in the American housing market, but there is still this generational property wealth gap. So th- this kind of critique of liberalism and critique of, in a way, this critique of the mainstream, the mainstream history of the feminist movement that the intersectionality provides, I think is really stimulating and, and can actually be very tough, you know, for white women as well, actually, to, to, to come across this critique. You know, I've had this come up in the classroom and in conversations that I had where I talk about this concept that to, to, to kind of problematize and, and, and question these heroic figures from the white feminist movement is it can actually be a really, really difficult conversation to have as well. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. And so, you know, it's kind of leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, um, which is just the attempts to to ban this that we're seeing at the moment in in the US and particularly to problematize the teaching of American history at the moment in in a way that that kind of erases this conflict and erases this angle. I think it's still the case that to many 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 Americans and and this is because this is the way that they were taught history when they were younger, right? And I mean the average person goes to school, they have some history classes, then they exit school and they probably don't spend too much time thinking about it again, but they they have a particular formative idea about what American history is. And that's really still a history that's really focused on kind of heroic white men like the founders 
and the presidents who are really deified in the telling of American history. And there's this kind of sense in which the normal American, like the average American, is still understood as being white and male. That's how, you know, Donald Trump can get away with claiming that he represents the average American. And there's all of these efforts in, in the U.S. at the moment to make sure, basically, that the teaching of American history remains locked in this kind of paradigm to the extent now that in some states it's become illegal even to talk about racial conflict in American history. And this is having an enormously chilling effect because the way that these laws work is that they make teachers personally liable to be sued for large amounts of money if they bring up these things in the classroom. So there are teachers in America today who have lost their jobs and lost their livelihoods because they talked about racial conflict or, or indeed uh, gender conflicts and you know issues of intersectionality in ways that were considered not okay according to, to these laws. So I wondered if you had a few thoughts on, on what exactly we're seeing with this backlash against CRT and against intersectionality in American education today, and maybe if that's something that, that you've experienced as well in your work in Madrid, where I understand that you also work with American students and American parents. So I think in general with the, the, the mischaracterization of what critical race theory is and the misunderstanding of what it represents um, is part and parcel with this spree of white backlash where conservatives are argue, arguing once again that critical race theory is divisive, that it's, it's brainwashing children and retelling history, that it's um, racist against white people and again propelling these arguments of colour color blindness. These conversations that are happening in the US are happening on a very smaller level here in Spain. Parents who, again, who are hearing these, these, the ripple effects of this divisiveness and the mischaracterization of critical race theory on right wing media in the States and are then replicating the same discussions here in Spain. And it does have a chilling effect. It has a silencing effect on what students are taught and it raises the the reality or the the history that we can teach, which in itself has has a lot of, is extremely harmful for the student to be taught to be taught a history that maintains and keeps white supremacy pretty concrete. Some of the ideas that we get from critical race theory could be applied outside of the US. So we see things like here in Spain, parents complaining that um, children are being taught a perverse uh, retelling or account of Spanish history. And this can again be applied to other forms, other countries that have a visceral and insidious racist history. You, um, so you used the term white supremacy when you were talking there. Now, I know that this term is obviously incredibly loaded and it's used in kind of a specific way within CRT and within in sectional discourse. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, about that term white supremacy and, and what it means within this discourse. So that the idea of uh, white supremacy from critical race theory tells us that discrimination remains embedded within institutions, within systems, within education, because of the way that white dominance permeates outwards and it marginalizes people who aren't able to assimilate, who aren't able to gain access to to systems that grant them privilege, and that the American system was built on racism, it was built on white supremacy, it was built on this idea of white superiority. Yeah, so and I think that, you know, so so this concept is 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 really challenging for people to engage with because when they you know they hear the term white supremacy, they think, oh, this means the KKK 
or neo-Nazis or, or something like this. And, you know, what, what it refers to, as you explained, within CRT is it's more about um, structures of belief and economic structures and political structures that exist within American society and culture and history that aren't actually necessarily to do with individual choice or individual volition. I think this is the part of it that people struggle with so much because when they hear the term white supremacy, they think, oh, well, you're accusing me of actively hating people who are not white. Abraham Kendi is a good example, I guess. I guess, you know, Abraham Kendi talks about how, so, okay, we can see the electoral college as a white supremacist institution because it structurally privileges the voices of white voters over African-American voters just because of, you know, the, the way that it works. That Basically, if you're a rural white person who, who lives in Ohio, then your vote just matters more than it does for someone who doesn't live in a swing state, for instance, who's perhaps more likely to be person of color. So much of the contribution that an intersectional analysis can bring to us understanding white supremacy is by suggesting what, what, where it exists within American culture and in society where we might not even know that it's there and it's not necessarily operating on the basis of people's individual volition. So and I, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about particular policy areas, particular challenges that face individuals and communities within the, in the United States and how this intersectional analysis and the spotlight that it helps us to shine on these embedded structures and discourses of racism and, and, and sexism help us perhaps to think about how to solve those problems. First of all, is reproductive justice. Now, this is something that intersectionality helps us understand um, really effectively. And it helps us be critical of the ways that within the US today, their curtailing of abortion rights speaks to the larger system of sexism, of racism and classism and um, arguably capitalism plays into these conversations. But what an intersectional lens would provide us in this area on the right to abortion is is that it looks at reproduction in a very holistic way by examining the barriers that create disparities in family planning in the US. So it's not just talking about the right to, to abortion, it's also talking about free universal health care for, for people, for prenatal and postnatal health, for programs such as living wage. To look at it as in sense that it's not just enough to secure the right to abortion, it needs to, to break down these barriers that, that marginalise people. This is another really important conversation within the feminist movement is that a mother doesn't, doesn't just equal a cis woman. And that instead, within feminism, within intersectional feminism, we need to be incorporating multiple ideas of what family and parenthood looks like to make sure we're not being trans-exclusive in these conversations about abortion rights or reproductive rights. And finally, an important part, and this links to what we were talking about, about retelling history, is that we need to recognise the ways that eugenics has historically shaped our idea of family, and that this lens forces us to look back into history about how racist logic is still shaping policy today. The second thing that I want to bring up is that Transphobic rhetoric is something that's tearing through the US and this is something that intersectional feminism needs to be shining a spotlight on. So this is the idea that this is the the way that trans rights and curtailing laws on gender identity and gender markers on documentation in the US has been completely slashed in certain states in the US. 
13 anti-trans bills have been passed in the past year. For an example of one is in Florida, where just last June, during Pride Month, the governor of Florida signed a law banning transgender girls from participating on girls' sports teams from their middle school up until their university years. Now, this bill itself was just one of more than 110 bills that were proposed in the last year. So, in general, if we're advocating for feminism, we need to be inclusive of what of who we're including in the movement. We need to remember the uh, conversations that were taking place decades ago of who exactly was included under the feminist movement to make sure that we're taking account of all the ways that specific women are marginalised. And this includes race, gender, sexuality, because each of these are overlapping and intersecting in various ways. The final part that I want to highlight is the way that immigration policy interacts or intersects with feminism and intersectional feminism and that to highlight intersectional feminism must also be inclusive of those who don't have the right to citizenship, of those who aren't able to access citizenship because of their legal status for because of means that are outside of their control. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. What I find really interesting is the way that intersectionality has become so much more prominent in US discourse and particularly in politics and policymaking discourse over the last decade or so. And we're seeing it linked just so much more to politics and policy. And if I can just just to kind of like illustrate this shift, if I think about the three, well, except for Joe Biden, the three most prominent people in Democratic Party politics over the last 12 years or so, which are Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama and Bernie Sanders, you know, when Hillary Clinton ran for president in 2008, she tried to portray herself as the woman of the white working class. You know, she was running against Barack Obama, you know, who's an African-American historic candidacy. And she tried to position herself actually kind of using this discourse of Americanness and arguably of whiteness against Barack Obama. She lost. Barack Obama won. Barack Obama, though, although his presence as a black man in the in America's highest office did a huge amount to galvanize conservative opposition and, and, and to mainstream racism more within the conservative movement, he himself did not actually often at all speak about racial issues or about gender issues. He was really, really careful to try and present himself as, as kind of a, a representative of a colorblind liberalism. And then it's really with with Hillary Clinton in 2016 when she runs for office and very, very proudly embraces the label of intersectionality. She actually used it. She said it in speeches. Her campaign used it in campaign um, rhetoric and, and, and communications all of the time. And I think that even tells us something that in that eight-year period, she had felt the need to pivot from basically, I am the representative of the white working class to... I am the representative of this broad intersectional coalition. And it really shows you, I think, how much politics within the Democratic Party shifted during that period much, much, much more in this direction. But this has kind of kicked off this, this big debate on the left 
in America about whether this is basically a good idea or not, politically speaking. Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. Joe Biden won in 2020 with a campaign that was not noticeably intersectional, him being, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden. It raises this point that if we... If, if we believe, as I do believe, that racism is the most, you know, one of the most important organizing principles of American culture and politics, and that sexism also remains an enormous barrier to, um, to, to, to women and has an enormous impact on American culture, then actually the argument gets made that maybe it's best that intersectionality inform our policy, but it not inform our politics. Because if we explicitly foreground these themes in politics, then we run the risk of running into this racial and and, and, and sexist backlash that basically is then going to stop Democrats getting elected and implementing policies that are informed by intersectionality. So I guess one school of thought on this has been to say that we should actually absolutely be aware of intersectionality and we should craft policies around it that, to, to tackle it. But it has to be kind of garbed in the clothing of of more explicitly kind of white male normative politics. But this is an incredibly difficult thing to accept as well because it leaves these discourses unchallenged, right? If the, if the Democratic Party isn't going to try to contest right-wing discourse about critical race theory, about intersectionality, you know, about these overlapping, overlapping systems of oppression, then who is going to do it? So it's a really, really tricky thing, I think, especially at a time when we're so worried about actually just the very fate of American democracy. And it means that often the Democratic Party just seems to be in this often this impossible position where they just absolutely have to win. Otherwise, we're worried that 10 years from now, America's not even going to be a democracy anymore. And, you know, in, in the Republican Party's one-party state, I'm pretty sure that intersectional rights are not going to be attended to. So there's this real, real tension there between, you know, about political strategy, about the ethics of challenging this discourse. And I just wondered if you had any, had any thoughts on this. Focusing on white backlash itself and reacting to white backlash, it centers whiteness. It centers the reaction of whiteness and it centers the reaction of, of, of white people. And again, in some way, upholds white supremacy if we're constantly being on the offense to think about how would white people react how are we going to to dim down white fragility or the fears of of setting off a backlash this is because by focusing on that you're limiting the, the ability to have actual impactful change on those who need intersectionality the most and i think you're right using or keeping intersectionality within informing policy is the right way to do it because in that way it keeps intersection intersectional feminism for the people who who need intersectional feminism the most the most vulnerable in society and takes it away from the from from the hands of the white majority electorate from those who actually do have power in creating policies but this is something that Kimberly Crenshaw writes on is that centering the most marginalized women and folk is the way to move feminist femin the feminist movement forwards but it gets tricky because if we don't react to backlash, we have horrible, insidious policies like anti-trans policies within schools. We have curtailing of abortion rights, getting slashed left, right and centre. 
so what do we do? Do we react to it? Do we not react to it? I think one thing that I, I'm extremely interested in is understanding narratives and how these narratives are shaped in society and how they're feeding the how they're feeding media outlets which then get rippled outwards into society into american into the into the hands of the american electorate which then shape politics it's all a big feedback loop right by understanding the impact of language itself and how these narratives are shaped through the language helps us understand how these laws are actually being constructed on the basis of white supremacist language. You've made a really interesting point there, which is that this debate that goes on within democratic circles, it invests too much importance in the aesthetics of politics, because actually, the you know, if we don't fight back against these policies, which have been pushed really hard by the right at the moment, then that is basically just to say that we consider the rights of some Americans to be expendable on the broader mission of keeping Republicans out of office. Because this isn't just about political aesthetics, you know, so it's not just about, okay, well, you can't, you just get a candidate like Joe Biden and then make him kind of the front man for intersectional policies. That's not mm -hmm. actually really going to work. You have to also make the case for those intersectional policies as well and push back against Republican discourse, which is becoming more and more aggressive. And I guess it's just a it's a it's a facet of how polarized America is becoming that you're seeing, you know, at the same time on the left that we see this growing understanding of intersectionality, this growing understanding of, of these overlapping systems of oppression and how important it is to combat them. We see Republicans yeah. just moving even further away from the idea of doing that and becoming more and more hostile to it. And it's part of this feedback loop in American politics that just really worries me right now. It, it seems so mm -hmm. much like it's just two different countries that just can't communicate with each other anymore. But the answer can yeah. definitely not be just for the left to disarm itself because it's worried about a white backlash because what are you actually saving there? You're just basically yeah. accepting the rules of the game as the Republicans establish them. So... I feel like I always end this podcast on a pessimist note, especially recently. It's kind of another one because I don't think it's easy to come up with an answer to this question. Um, but thanks so much, Shanna, for coming on the show today to tell us about these issues. Please look in the show notes for a link to Shanna's podcast. And um, yeah, thanks again, Shanna, so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs>